Welcome back to the Swirl Suite, everybody. So we are back in action. We had a few weeks off due to travel and wine events. And there was so much going on in the past few weeks and still going on. But we're back with our special guest, Stu Smith of Smith Madrone Vineyards. Stu gets into his entire wine journey from getting his master's in viticulture from UC Davis to building his winery with his bare hands, along with his brother, Charles. Before this episode gets started, be sure to subscribe, like this episode, share, and also leave a comment. We hope you enjoy. Cheers. Oh, I wanted to hear about your weekend. I saw all your posts and all the stuff you're Ah! doing. I wanted to know how your weekend was and what have you been doing? Friday was phenomenal. Um, Nancy Ireland uh, from Redtail Ridge Winery, and she's out of the Finger Lakes. Mm-hmm. So um, Nancy, just to give some background on, she's a winemaker and she's the owner of Redtail Ridge. But Nancy, before moving to the East Coast and starting that um, vineyard, um, was the director of R&D for Gallo for, I would say, 25 to 30 years. So she comes with, like, a real technical background. And if you ever wonder, like, those wines, I'm going to say Sutter Home. I don't know if that's a Gallo wine or what have you. How it stays consistent every time you pick it up, regardless of what year. That was her job, like, to ensure that consistency what have you, along with all of the other. You got to have a really good palate for that. A super good palate. Yeah. Super good palate. So she was in town doing the rounds or what have you. And we had a happy hour with her um, on the patio of um, LaSalle restaurant, which is also the, um, the Kempton Banneker. So like if you were looking for a sexy getaway um, in downtown DC that nobody really knows about, this is where you want to go. Um, they have an outdoor patio. And then, of course, like everyone else, they have a rooftop bar that's really, mm. really, really nice. Um, so we hung out there, and we didn't let the the storm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a cloud in the sky. And then the next thing I know. Yeah. But she she has, um, she of course, in being in the Finger Lakes, she has these amazing Rieslings and a lot of bubbles. But she also has like um, a pet nut Pinot Noir, and she's all about natural fermentation. Mm-hmm. And um, full disclosure, like I'm not always a big fan of that because <laughs> it's a little funky. Um, but I'm trying. I'm trying Pet Nut Nation. Be <laughs> just with me. But hers are just amazingly clean. There's no funk on it. It's just. Mm-hmm. Like, she knows what she's doing or what have you. And we pretty much shut down the restaurant. It was a, it was a really good evening with her. And then, um, you know, it's Black Restaurant Week. Yes, it is. It, it is Black Restaurant Week. And I did not know, but, like, it's celebrated on all 50 states. So there are Black restaurant tours in Alaska and all of the places. Wow, I, that and I didn't know. I learned that last night, and um, we were on the rooftop of the Diplomat Hotel, which is right across from the convention center. Super cool, really cool place to what have you. And there's this foundation that supports 
black restaurant here, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but they were hosting a uh, an evening last night, and we were, were registered as being a part of that. And so it's just a really cool vibe to be on top of the rest on the rooftop. And Maker's Mark um, was sponsoring mm. also. So they were they were doing um nice little shots. And um and my my drink of the summer is an old fashioned. Yes ma'am. And so I have been like every bar I'm going to like comparing and I I have a favorite. I'm not ready to reveal it yet. Okay. But you and I will have to have to try it. Um, yeah. So that was that was that was super cool. And there's going to be all sorts of events around the city. So please, you know, go and support. And also, the food trucks are also considered part of restaurants. Oh. Too. So if you, yeah, if you know a food truck, support them. Um, and um. There's a lot of still a lot of grant money out there for black restaurateurs because um, they were super impacted by COVID, even though, you yeah. know, kind of like it's not too quite of a distant memory. So yeah. we have been even, all over the place. And mm-hmm. even if you um, decide to Uber Eats the black restaurant, that'll help, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we we've been we've been around and then. um Thursday, this Thursday, the twentieth. I'm not sure when this is airing. We're we're going back to our favorite art gallery, our Black Art Gallery in Bowie. I'm telling you, they have, they just have such a great quality of art there. And if you ever go by there, one thing that um, it's Jackie and Derek who own the place, and they've been in the art game for. Over 25 years, the way I have you, um, is that they teach you not only about the art in their gallery, but they also teach you as art as an investment mm. and a, a way to shelter your money. Wow. Um, which wow. I, you know, never considered, what have you. And obviously, I have no money to shelter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all my money is available now. Um, but they really teach you on how to invest in different pieces and the appreciation of it. So if you, you know, if you're thinking about, I can I afford a piece of the what have you, you know, they have some really reasonable pieces there. They have some really expensive pieces, but they will help guide you in that. So we're doing a tasting, a financial networking tasting. You don't have to be a business owner, but it's one of those, estate planning, how you don't get hit by income tax. Because what yeah. I learned um, is in the past administration, that shall remain nameless and hopefully wear orange jumpsuits soon. Um, even though there were tax cuts, people are starting to feel the implications of that now. And so this is a nice, fun networking event around wine, but you can learn how to better protect your money. So that is what, you know, we've been up to. And then the friend of the show, Mr. Keith Beavers, was our guest curator of um, our summer wine club. And he he picked my all-time favorite wine of the summer, 
What? And it is it is called Choke. Hmm. And it is from New Zealand. And it is a sparkling Shiraz. And this sucker goes down so smooth. And it is fruit forward, but not jammy. And, and it's perfect, especially on these hot days that we have had. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is, is it's so hard to find these, these Shirazes from New Zealand because they only make them for Christmas Day. Uh, what? And so, yes, I learned that. So that is why it is very difficult to find them. Oh, I'm on and your so side he's going to be talking for our club members. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm called place my Shoke. Order. Shoke. Shoke. And it looks like it looks like a little hen on okay. there. But it is amazing. And it is my it is my summer wine. All right. Well. So what you you've been busy too. Well, I had family in town this past weekend. And um one of my family members who lives uh in the area had a pool built. So we've been in the pool, child. Pool side. So that's why I have this nice golden tan. But uh, yes, I've been uh, splashing in the pool, uh, drinking bubbles. It's been wonderful. Um, And we saw the Lion King on Sunday. It was great. It got better. I saw it a few years ago. But um, yeah, this show was good. It was really good. At the Kennedy, did you go to the yeah. Kennedy Center? Was yep. it at the Kennedy Center? Okay, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It was it was great. Um, let's see what else. Um, next week we won't have a show because I'll be in Napa. Well, no, I won't be in Napa proper, but I'll be in Sacramento, uh, for the wine influencer boot camp at UC Davis. So I'll be there for most of the week. So follow me on social media. I'm be, I'm going to be documenting the whole thing. So uh, that should be fun. And I just looked up the weather in Sacramento and it is like 80 degrees, 90 degrees with 1% humidity. Can you imagine? All sun. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm ready. And I was going <laughs> to, because I go see Beyonce next week. Um, and I was going to get braids before I left for California. I was like, well, wait, let me check the weather. And I was like, oh, no humidity. Oh, we can have the hair out, honey. All right. All right. I get the braids when I get back because it is dreadful here. It is terribly hot. So, but yeah, that's what's going on with me. Oh, and to give everybody an update, Thank you so much for all of your votes for the favorite chef competition. I am no longer in the competition. I didn't make the top five, but it's been very fun. And good luck to the rest of the contestants because it's some great chefs on there. So that was super fun. But yeah, that is all that's going on with me. Not, well, I'm not sure when this is airing, but I am going to be at the Wine and Culture the wine and culture fest, yes, in 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 the A, <laughs> and um, and I don't know if some of you know or many of you know, um, the the Swirl Suite is nominated for a podcast, so hopefully yes. fingers crossed. I'll oh, be also coming home. 
oh, talking you, about our, our you had, if if I win if I win because I'm I'm nominated for best wine influencer, so you got to go accept my award if they call my name. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, so look, I have th- I have I have three opportunities to accept an award for you, and then for the Squirrel Suite. And Vino three hundred one is not yes. for for something, but I'm I'm confident we're not winning that category. <laughs> but um, but I have three opportunities, so I have to find the cutest outfit. You know, yes, ma'am. Just in case. Yes. Just in case. Yeah. Yes. Welcome to the Swirl Suite. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yes. This yes. Is, this is going to be fun. Yes, it is. I am sitting here and I'm drinking your Chardonnay and it is wonderful. Thank you. Thank yes. you. Uh, I agree. And I just poured <laughs> some myself. All right. Was, You're drinking the Chardonnay as well or something else? I, I am. All right. I, I just poured it. I, I'm, awesome. a, I'm also a Boy Scout, so I'm always prepared. I'm aware you're a Boy Scout. I find that so interesting. And I have a lot of questions about that. I do. Um, but... Uh, tell me about your family. You come from a family of farmers. No, not really. Uh, no, the, the <clears throat> my farming uh, interest came out of, of going to Berkeley, going to realizing that I liked wine more than beer as an undergraduate um, and didn't want to go back to Los Angeles where I grew up. And uh, move forward, and and one thing led to another. So there there is no long history of farming in the family. And what exactly did you study when you were in college that made you realize mm-hmm. that you liked wine more than beer? Well, I was uh, I went to uh, <laughs> I went to Berkeley in the sixties, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and I played a. Uh, uh, back then, they had freshman football at at, at uh, university, so I did that. And after that, I played rugby, and um, and I just got more interested in wine than I did in beer. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had friends who came from the Napa Valley, and I'd go up and visit. And I, you know, got, got to be a senior, and as a senior, I became a what was called an intercampus exchange student meaning that I was a, enrolled at Berkeley, but I could take any classes at, at any other UC, and UC Davis was close. And um, so I went out there and took the introductory class in viticulture and enology and loved it and, and said, what the heck? Um, so I started taking uh, kind of basic chemistry classes that I, I would need to to do to go into the field. And, and um applied for graduate school and uh and was admitted somehow and that started <laughs> me down this whole path so you decided that you wanted to become did you know that you wanted to become a winemaker when you um when you were exchange student and experiencing all of these things no no i i didn't i knew i was interested in the industry mm. but but i i didn't know that i wanted to be a vintner or a winemaker. I just mm. knew that I wanted to explore an alternative. You know, back back at that time, uh, there was a lot of alternative looking arounds as, as far as jobs and and doing things, and and um, uh, and so I was just looking, and um, and I had been uh, I was a lifeguard on the beaches in Santa Monica during my college years, and I got to know a family behind me. 
but behind the tower that I was at on, on the uh, Santa Monica beaches. And um, and they said, you know, well, what are you doing when you're graduating? And I said, well, I'm I'm going off to UC Davis and I'd like to get into the wine business and see see what it's all about. <clears throat> and and it turns out this family that I did, I, I only knew casually uh, um, said, oh, well, and, and please don't laugh. <laughs> Um, they said, oh, there's a bunch of us and we'd, we'd love to get in the wine business. And if you find a piece of land, we'll buy it and, and uh, we'll do something together. Wow. And and that wow. sent me sent me down a path. Now, it, that did, did not work out. <laughs> OK, uh, that was. But what it did is it started me on an idea that I'd never had, had before. And um, and if there's one thing I am, it's tenacious. And I just started, you know, going on and after it and on it and after it and found some property in the Napa Valley. And you have to understand, this was 1970. Um, this was a, you know, the Napa Valley and wine in America was a very, it, it, it was decades away from where we are today. I mean, it, it was a cultural shift. P people would, wine was not part of the American concept at all and napa valley was a sleepy little agricultural backwater area um that was very male dominated and um uh but i just kind of kept going forward and forward and and um and and uh the things that i was able to do then are simply not available today to people that i mean i i happened to be at the right place at the right time and I went through a door that was open for a short while and um, and allowed me to do it. And what I did was syndicate a little partnership of, of anybody who would give a 22-year-old money. Um, and uh, and that's how I started it in, in 1971. And, and I might right. add, if I, if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I would have done it entirely different or maybe not at all. How do you, this is Leslie. How do you, at 22, go around to investors and say, hey, I want to make wine. Could you give me a, a couple thousand dollars? Um, really good question. And I'm not sure how I did it, but I did it. Um, I was the department's first teaching assistant uh, for Drs. Amron and Singleton there in 1971. Um and uh, ignorance is bliss. Um, I I just uh, damned the torpedoes in full speed ahead. I, I I just didn't know any better, um, and I didn't raise anywhere near the money. But you have to understand that back then, um, uh, the the cost of getting into the wine business compared to today is is a fraction, a very small fraction of a percent compared to what what it takes today. Um, my brother uh, joined me a couple years later. We literally built the winery with our own hands. Um, we did all of those things. We were young and strong and um, and were able to, to do it. And so I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. Uh, but I also, it, it was it was just timing, it was luck. Do you remember what you first planted and what that first vintage was like for you? 
Like how did how did that make you feel? Sure. Well, um, the, the the feeling I don't quite remember as well as as the actual doing. So, <clears throat> being a graduate student at UC Davis, um, uh, and and having to take all these classes, um, I realized that I wanted to plant. Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to go to the mountains. And and that's because I believe then I think there are two kind of um, uh, uh, areas of of statements, if you would, about the wine industry that haven't changed in seven, eight thousand years. And that is, well, two thousand anyway. And that is um, uh, Virgil in 43 B.C. said Bacchus Amat Colas. Bacchus loves the hills. And, and what he was getting at is two 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 statements one is that um uh the best you, you can only make the best wine from the best grapes and the best grapes come from the mountains all things considered and so i wanted to go to the mountains to try to make the very best wines possible i, I don't think i understood what the word artisanal was uh, but that's really when i look back on it that's what i was trying to do is to become an artisanal winemaker and to grow grapes and to try to make something um, of significance. I, I taught winemaking uh, for 10 years, 10, 11 years, um, uh, you know, anything to bring in money. Uh, we planted uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and at that time we called it Johannesburg Riesling. And we were the first winery, first vineyard in Napa County to use heat treated certified vines. And so, and because where we planted it was a forest and I had to clear the forest and um, get it prepared for, for, for agriculture, um, we qualified for being an increase block with the state of California where, where um, th this was a period of time when people were spending a lot more uh, attention to the quality of the planting material. Was Cabernet Sauvignon truly Cabernet Sauvignon? Was Riesling really Riesling? Was Pinot Noir really Pinot Noir? And, and up until that time, things were pretty loosey-goosey in the wine industry. Uh, if you got a delivery of Cabernet, it probably wouldn't be all that unusual to have a percent or two of some other variety that had been mixed in there. Um, and so by having this remote area at the very top of Spring Mountain, we qualified to be uh, an increase block with the uh, State of California's Foundation Plant Material Service. And so in the early years, anything that we cut off of the vines, we could then sell as certified by the State of California to be true to type and varietal. And so that gave us a little bit of money too. As a matter of fact, we looked for every opportunity to make a little bit of money somewhere. And so, uh, so that gave us a little bit of leg up. And I would say also that um, I was one of the earlier, uh, not the earliest by any means, but one of the earlier um, uh, young people to get into the wine business, you know, that had gone through UC Davis. Um, Dave, uh, Dave Stair, uh, Dry Creek was, was there at the same time. Uh, uh, Andy Quaddy was, was there at the same time. There, there were a half dozen, eight of us that were kind of all there at the same time. Um, I hope I answered the question. I'm not sure I did, but no, you absolutely answered. Um, I uh, 
I want to go back really quick to heat treated vines. What does that mean? That's my first time hearing it. I was going to ask the same thing. Okay. So heat treated vines. Back then, uh, there were all these lovely pictures of the North Coast vineyards in the fall where the vines were all looking red. And you looked across them and they had this red hue, beautiful and a great fall color. The vines turned uh, red. And that was leaf roll virus. And when the leaf turned red, you might as well have just ripped it off the vine because it quit photosynthesizing. And, and so to clean up those vines, uh, UC Davis started looking for um, the, the, the right type of Cabernet Sauvignon. What was the most classically structured, if you would, um, Cabernet Sauvignon or, or Riesling or Pinot Noir or Sauvignon Blanc? And then what they did is that they took it and grew it in what, what is called a phytotron. And that's basically a real high class, a greenhouse. And sometimes they would rotate with the sun. There would be sunlight on them all, all, all day, all night. They would keep it going and they would mispropagate. <clears throat> and the vine itself would grow very fast. And after a while, the apical meristem, which is the very tippy tippy of the, of the shoot, outgrew the viruses. So they would pinch off the end of the shoot and then mispropagate it. And then that would become a heat. And, and then they would, they, it would be in this phytotron for 100, 200, 300, however many days. And so these, this heat treatment would sometimes come with a number of heated days that it was in the phytotron. And so that was really the first time when, when, when UC Davis uh, started this program of trying to clean up the 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 viruses that are uh, in in many of the grapevines, and that's what heat treated is. And so um, we were the first ones, as I said, to grow those in Napa Valley. So therefore, and and because we were remote on the top of a hillside, <clears throat> there was no chance of kind of other vineyards, uh, bugs or viruses to get into us. And so that's why we did what we did. Are those viruses still something that that vineyards struggle with? They are. Um, there is uh, there's now what's called a leaf roll complex, uh, which is a number of different leaf roll viruses. At, at at the time that we did this, we thought there was only one. Now we've realized there's several, if not up to eight or nine. Um, and uh, uh, viruses and vines is is a, is a constant problem. And um, bugs can transfer and sometimes the the virus. Uh, from one vine to another, um, so that gets to be a, a, a problem, and and just diseases of grapevines gets to be a, a, a problem. Uh, there, once you plant a vineyard, uh, it's only a matter of a, a decade or two before you start seeing things that are kind of taking over the vine. Um, in Europe, when they uh, grow grapes, they they generally don't uh, tear out vineyards as often as we do in California. California, we tear out and start over every 30, 35 years. Um, and in Europe, what they do is that they, they'll leave it in there. They'll just rogue out the vines that are dying or dead, and then they'll replant. And so they may have a vineyard that's 100 years old, but most of those plants are probably not 100 years old. Um, here at Smith Madrone, we have a block of vineyard right out in front of the winery that we planted in 1972. 
in the late 90s, it got phylloxera and we replanted vine by vine. So even though the the stakes are many of the stakes, if not most of the stakes, are from the original planting in 1972, there are very few, if any, vines left from that period of time because the phylloxera got in there and, and killed them. And so there's no method that can prevent some of these viruses or, you know, maybe not as frequent? No. Well, there's, you know, there's Pierce's disease, which is, it's not a virus, but a bacterium. There's, there's a Phomoxus, there's dead arm. Uh, some of these are um, just uh, uh, funguses to get into the vines. There's a thing called um, uh, measles. And uh, with Riesling, it, it's, a, it's an issue for older Riesling vines. And what happens is that the berries, um, which should be kind of light colored green, uh get, get spots on them. it doesn't hurt the wine it doesn't hurt you know it doesn't look very pretty um and that vine may have measles one year but the next year it doesn't and its neighbor will and that happens more as the vines get older and older and and you know we we have um a number of universities uc davis um uh fresno state uh santa uh, uh pardon me um san luis obispo uh, uh, Washington State, um, Geneva, and these, you know, back in the East Coast area, they're all doing research, trying to figure out how to to make things better and cleaner, and and um, and and um, you know, better quality grapes and for longer living grapes. And so there's there's a lot, and and then you know, I completely left off the rest of the wine growing world. You know, there are universities all over the world that are all trying to do the same thing to to look at grapes and try to figure out how to um, to make them live longer. And, and, uh, and, and by living longer, it makes it more efficient, less expensive, and hopefully um, keep the prices price of, of wine down. But isn't that just part of the nature of farming? Like, I think we forget that growing grapes yes. is just a really sexy fruit to farm. I'm not sure how sexy it is. <laughs> it's just hard work. Um, uh, but you are absolutely right. And I try to, and thank you for prompting me, um, try to tell people that at the heart of the wine business is agriculture. And with agriculture comes all of the variations and and the threats and the and the uh, and the issues that that, that that come with Mother Nature. And a little bit like my kids, as I like to say, I don't take credit and I don't take blame. Uh, it's the same thing with vintages. Um, if Mother Nature is nice to us, we get a good vintage. And if she gets pissed off at us, things just aren't so good for us. Uh, also, I, I, I like to say that in farming, I think um, all farmers have to be eternal optimists and eternal pessimists all at the same time. Because if you don't have both of those in you, one becomes dominant, and then you're going to make mistakes because you're too much of an optimist and, and, and you're, you're discounting your pessimist side that'll keep you safe. And if you let the safe side get too strong, then you won't do anything interesting and challenging. And um, and I think one of the things about the wine industries today in the last 20 years is that there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of change, um, 
Uh, I think it's an ever-evolving industry. Um, as I would like to say, um, you would think after, I think now it's, they're saying grape growing and winemaking is 11,000 years old. And you would think after 11,000 years, wouldn't we all agree on when it's the right time to pick the grapes? I mean, simple little thing. When are they ripe? And God, can you get into a fight over that so quickly? And uh, I'm not sure, you know, whether that's going to, you know, get resolved in my lifetime or it's going to be another thousand years with people still arguing about when do we pick the grapes? I mean, it just it just seems to me you would think that we. But as there's so many variables. There's so many variables to why you pick at different times or specific grapes. Right. So it's it's complicated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it is in it in, in some ways. Um, it isn't. Uh, I, I take that back. It is complicated. But when you, let's just take two schools of thought. We at Smith Madrone, when we go out and sample the grapes, we take a Ziploc baggie and we pick a couple hundred berries. And, and we go down five, 10 rows on one side and we pick a certain number of berries from the cane on the right side. We take a certain number of berries from the cane on the left side. And then we turn around and go to the other side and do the same thing. So from that area, we may get, so uh, four samples in that region. So we end up with um, probably 12, 16 berries, something like that. And then we go down another five, 10, 12, 15 vines, do the same thing. And we do that all for, for the entire block. Then we come back, we squish it all up. We, you know, fill, you know do, do a kind of a rough filtration and we, and we take the sample analyze it and go, okay, this is what we got. Other people will walk through the vineyard. And for us, this takes a long time. This is not a simple, uh, quick, quick project because you're walking every fourth row, um, sometimes every third row. So somebody else will walk in and they'll stop at a vine, pluck a vine, pluck a, 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 a grape, pop it in their mouth and go, mm -hmm. walk another hundred feet, take another one, another hundred feet, take another one. So where we're tasting 200 berries, they're tasting 30. And we all know we as humans like sugar. And a lot of people, when they're walking down the road, popping, you know, berries into their mouths, what they're really tasting is sugar. You know, are they sweet enough? And we'd much rather use science. So we take our sample. We have a refractometer. We we uh, we see what that that sugar level is. We call it bricks. Uh, basically, it's um, it's a measurement of soluble solids, which is ninety eight percent sugar. And then if if we want to go a little bit further, we'll run the TA and the pH of the sample, which you cannot do when you pop that grape into your mouth. And so you know there there are there are scientific ways of doing it that minimize i think a bad a bad decision um or or you know hinder a bad decision but um but there are people who believe that we're wrong and they're right and we believe we're right and they're wrong <laughs> so you know who's to say it's all in the wine so what uh what advice would you give somebody who wants to be in this industry and wants to be a winemaker? Um talk to a lot of people. 
it, it is it is a it's a glamorous industry in one way. Uh, we're dealing with a wonderful product, uh, but it's also hard to make a living in the industry. Uh, to it's, it's as I like to say, wineries and winemakers are a little bit like Broadway actors. For everyone that makes it big on Broadway, most of the actors are waiting tables. And that's a little bit like uh, the wine business. The, 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 the wineries that become super, super in demand, they're going to make a lot of money and, um, and do well. And most of us are really doing what it is that we love doing, uh, which is just making wine. And, and, um, and maybe another way of looking at it is that I kind of compare Napa Valley to the Italian Renaissance. And what I see is the new vintners that come in, they go, oh, my Duomo is bigger than your Duomo. And my church painter is more famous than your church painter. And uh, and I my quip back would be, I, we don't do Corinthian columns. And, and wineries are to us a place where grapes come in and we winemakers take care of them and nurture them and, you know, give them the TLC that they deserve. And out goes um, bottled wine. And the grapes really don't give one bit of hoot as to what it looks like or how much money it is or how much ego went into the individual who designed it. So, you know, we, we have a slightly different view of, of the world. Now. But we all seem to coexist. Can I um, just circle back to when you started in the 70s? Because I, I have to imagine that it was pretty exciting. You just had the great tasting in France and Napa Valley came up on top. Was there like a buzz in California at that time, like a, a bravado that didn't exist before? Um, it was very important, no question. D did we all see the movie? Um, oh, come on, was it? Uh, what was the name of it? Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock. Bottle Shock. Mm -hmm. Bottle okay. Shock. So I, I used to know, uh, know Jim Barrett and, and uh, Bo quite well. And there was almost nothing in that movie that took place in Napa. Um, but the one, the one thing that was um, true is that when his wine, they said it browned, it didn't brown, it's what we call it pinked. And at that time in our industry, back in the early 70s, we were so careful with oxygen to keep the, the, the fermenting must, the young wine away from oxygen. And so when we would bottle, our techniques of bottling weren't as good as they are obviously now. And so they would get a big shot of oxygen at bottling. And with white wine, sometimes that created the wine to, to pink. And uh, it happened to our first vintage of, of Chardonnay. And it pinked, and I'm going, okay, what the hell is this? And so one of the great things about America is that we have these agricultural colleges all over, and UC Davis is one of them. So I, I, I called up one of my or several of my professors and said, what's going on? Uh, and, and they explained it to me. And apparently uh, Australia is quite knowledgeable of this because they have a 100% duty on 
barrels being brought into Australia. And so having barrels there um, is expensive and there, there aren't nearly as many at that time. I, I'm sure it's different now, but at that time, there weren't nearly as many barrels used as in the United States. And so, and by using barrels, you had a certain amount of oxygen that got into the wine as it aged in barrels, especially Chardonnay, because we were all using uh, uh, French oak barrels for Chardonnay. And so that didn't happen where you you had a lot of, um, of, of um, uh, wine in barrels. On the other hand, we would purge our hoses, we would purge our tanks with carbon dioxide, and we did everything we could to keep oxygen from from the the wines, and it's something we all kind of uh, eventually backed away from, and and the pinking went away. But back to the bottle shock, that was a true scene. Uh, it did happen. Um, it was never thrown out. Uh, it was never intended to be thrown. Anyway, it, it, it Hollywood does Hollywood stuff. So I want to circle back to the Renaissance in Italy because being a winemaker and making wine is so expensive and takes so much capital up front. Um, having the big castles and the columns or whatever might attract a lot more people um, to spend, spend money there. Do you think that, well, how do you balance that? How do you balance attracting people to your, to your winery and buying the wine and staying true to just making great wine. Well, th that last statement, being true to making great wine, is what drives us. Um, it was probably twenty some odd years ago that we started to see this influx of just a huge amount of money coming into the industry. As as I like to say, the Mister and Mrs. Got Rocks who sold their widget company in the Silicon Valley for a bazillion dollars and they look at each other and go, well, what are we going to do now, honey? Um, and, and they go, oh, well, we love the Napa Valley. Let's go start a winery in the Napa Valley. And <clears throat> we being a little winery, I mean, when, when you, when you have to build the winery yourselves, because that's the only way you can afford it, you do things in a different way. And we started looking at this and going, okay, can we compete? So one winery in the Napa Valley, maybe 15 years ago, put in a, a glassed-in tasting room inside their caves where you did a hand scan to get into it. It cost this winery a million dollars to do this. And I guess it's so that the, uh, the uh, uh, very wealthy people can go have a wine tasting inside a cold cave, but in, but in a, in a, glass enclosure which is war i don't get it okay i just don't get it but um but we, we we can't compete with that nor do we nor do we care to compete with um and so we just went the other way when you come to smith madrone you stand in the in the cellar and taste wine um there's not a separate wine tasting room there's not a wine tasting person that's been hired to help you it's Charlie or I or Francois. It's the three of us who run the winery, make the wine, taste it, whatever. Um, so when you do a tasting at Smith Madrone, you you you're dealing with somebody who actually are hands on. Um, and and so we ran 
as far away as we could from that model because why compete against something that you really can't afford to do? And just, you, you have to be true to yourself. And our goal is to make the very best wine that we can. And maybe another way of putting this is that I grew up in Southern California and I was the kid that wanted the, the Volkswagen with the Porsche engine in it. I did not want the Porsche with the Volkswagen engine in it. And, and that was, that actually held, held us back because this is an industry which is an awful lot about um, uh, image and, and elegance and whatever, all those things that are out there that we deal with. And that's not who Smith Madrone is. We, we make wines for ourselves. First and foremost, we don't make wine for scores. Um, and we think we have a good palate, my brother and I and, and Francois, who's joined us in the last couple of years. Um, and so the three of us are all constantly tasting other people's wines. And if we ever start making wine for scores, we'll quit. We're done. That, that's just not who we are. We won't do that. And our feeling is that we have good palates. And as long as we keep making good wine, and there are enough people who agree with our palate, we stay in business. And um, and and for us, you know, the, the quality of the wine is what drives everything. Uh, we would much rather produce a very small amount of really good wine than a bigger quantity of larger wine. And that's why we're, you know, we're in the mountains and the mountains only give us so much. We don't buy other people's grapes. Um, and if we wanted, and we made this, you know, I, I made this decision at the very beginning. If we wanted, to grow and have a business, a real business, then we should have done it on the valley floor where we can get all, even then in the 1970s, you know, th there was um, a, a lot of tourists and, and a lot of wineries set themselves up to capture that tourist business. But we went to the mountains uh, to, to find that, that, that quality. Uh, I, and, and again, that, you know, that's my answer to your question. And, um, uh and it's a it's a it's a very personal thing uh in in doing it because i've spent my entire adult life doing this and um and i've seen a lot of changes uh and some of them for the good and sometimes i, I think i know where the wine industry is and and sometimes i don't and now this is one of those times where i don't really know where the, the industry is Thank you for that. And I just wanted to say congratulations uh, because a few years ago, you guys celebrated your 50th anniversary. We did. Yeah. We did. You're doing um, something right. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, it is, it does tickle my heart to, to reach that milestone. Um, but it's also, it's just a labor of love. I mean, we, we love what we're doing. Um, you know, we, we feel, uh, again, we, we were at the right place at the right time. And and um, people like us simply can't do, like I was, um, uh, can't do can't do those things today. I mean, but, but let me also back up and say that, that you asked about the wine industry earlier. There's always an opportunity for a new thought, a new idea. And I don't know what that idea is. I don't know what that thought is. I don't know, you know, but but going up against that kind of brick wall of marketing, 
you know, and just banging your head constantly into it without thinking about going around it. And there are people who are coming up into the wine industry. And if you can figure out a way to go around that wall, I mean, there's there's opportunities everywhere if you are of that creative person. Um, but it's that that's that's a hard thing to say to somebody because you, you, I don't know what that next thing is out there. Uh, even though I've been doing this for half a century, I, I I can't see. I don't have that vision of of what that next thing is. Um, to me, I just love wine, and and uh, I I love it on the dining room table. For me, it, it's the enjoyment of being with family friends, uh, especially at the dining uh, room table. And and you you have a glass of wine and you have conversation, and all of a sudden the ills of the day kind of slide away and, and life's a little bit better for, for a while. So. I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, let me say, um, uh-huh. I, I, let, let me, let me uh, uh, give you a couple things. One is um, I highly recommend a little short, a little short story by Roald Dahl and it's called taste. And all of us who are in the biz or love wine should, should read it. It's a short story. I think you can get it online. And even though it was written in the early 50s, I think, or even the late 40s, I'm not sure exactly when it was written. It could have been written yesterday. Mm. And it's all about a, a, uh, a very wealthy man who was a, a, a contractor, made lots of money, got into wine, had a wine uh, expert uh, with him. And it's all about um, the issues that that a lot of us deal with on a on a fairly regular basis in in the in the wine in the wine industry, which is and and then the other thing I would say, having taught this, is that if there's one thing I could get over to people, and that is taste with your mouth, not your eyes. Don't don't let your eyes uh, pre pre judge you as to what the wine is or or may not be. Um, just tr trust your own your own palate, and if you like it, you like it. And if it's a five hundred dollar bottle of something from wherever, and you don't like it, you just don't like it. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's necessarily overpriced. It just means you don't like it, and that's okay. And one of the things I, I would hope we as a as a culture could get to, which is enjoy wine for what it is. And if you don't like it, that's okay. Looking for somewhere to advertise? Consider the Swirl Suite podcast. Yep, right here. The Swirl Suite is now open for pre-roll advertisements, mid-roll advertisements, or post-roll advertisements. Some of our packages even include a social media shout out. If you're interested in sponsoring one episode or perhaps more, simply email us at swirlsuite at gmail.com. Cheers. All right, so our last set of questions are just Fun, fun questions, this or that, to get to know you a little bit better. And as you said before, you were, uh, wait, it's 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 not a Boy Scout leader. Is a what is the title? Well, I was the I I I was the uh, scoutmaster for scout our little master. troop here for eight years. Yeah, I think we need Boy Scouts more today than ever before. Oh, for sure, it's so hard for young people. Yeah, Leslie, were you a Girl Scout? No, I was a campfire girl. What I don't know the difference. So I don't know when Campfire started, but it was um, 
similar to Girl Scout, mm-hmm. but it was just a, a different organization, and um, they allow co-ed troops. Okay. So oh. that's how I got involved in Campfire. I mean, gotcha. now, you know, oh. things are co-ed, but back then when dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> they didn't have co-ed troops. Yes, I was Understood. Girl Scout. Yeah, gotcha. Right. Okay, right. first one, guys. Canoe yeah. or kayak? Oh, canoe. Okay, Leslie. Now let me let me give let me give you the okay. Reason. First okay. of all, uh, I've 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 been a whitewater canoeist all my adult uh, life. The thing about a canoe versus a kayak is that with a canoe you can take all your stuff with you and you can go what we call tripping. So you can go up into the North Woods and you can spend a week or two canoeing around the lakes or the white waters provided they're not too white wateries. Um, and you and you got all your stuff with you. Now, the problem with a canoe is that every now and again, it can tip over. Yeah. And if you tip over in one of these whitewater events and your canoe gets crunched or all your stuff goes out, you're in big doo-doo. No, but I am on the canoe team. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. All right, astronomy or bird watching? Oh, astronomy. Astronomy, 100%. Yeah. Astronomy, too. I, I, I've also never been bird watching. Um, it looked like I might get a little bored, but I mean, I'd try it, but I've never been bird watching. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Would you rather deal with bears or snakes? Ooh, that's a hard one. Depends on the snake, it depends on the bear. <laughs> I don't really want either of them. Exactly. Um, I choose C. None of the above. Right. If if you don't mind, I will join you with C. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't we, know how to do with ever so. Well, we do have we have three three kind of predominant snakes here. We have um, rattlesnakes, western rattlesnake, and and the thing about them is they don't want anything to do with us. I mean, they they really they don't. Um, uh, and then we have. Uh, Garter snakes, pardon me, not garter snakes, but gopher snakes. And gopher snakes look like rattlesnakes, and they're much more aggressive, but they can't harm you. And mm-hmm. so if you run into a rattlesnake, almost invariably, if you give the rattlesnake room, it will just leave because mm-hmm. it it knows it can't eat you. You're, we're, we're too big. But the gopher snake goes, I got nothing. I got n- I'm all show and no go. So if you get close to a gopher snake, it'll rear up, it'll kind of wag its tail like a rattlesnake, but it isn't, and it'll hiss and and just kind of be very aggressive at you, and you're backing up and going, oh my God, get me out of this mess. Um, the the bear, uh, we, fortunately, we don't, even though the California state flag is the grizzly bear, we don't have any grizzlies left in California. And by and large, the black bears, and we have them around the vineyard. Um, in this area, they're they're generally benign. All right, last question is for Stu. Which one of your wines pairs with s'mores? Oh, hmm. I would go with the Riesling. Really, really, <laughs> that I would I would not have called that. Me either. Well, I th- I think about the Cabernet or our Reserve and uh, red wine with s'mores. I just don't see it. 
huh. the, the the graham cracker and and the marshmallow um just it just doesn't seem like a, a good fix to me mm-hmm. but riesling but you got to understand i love riesling and I think Riesling yeah. is the most versatile of all the wines out there. And, and so I, 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 well, let's put it this way. <clears throat> if, if I, if I had the s'mores ready to go and, and I had the wines, the first one I would try would be the Riesling. Now I have to admit, I have never had Riesling and s'mores before ever, but now that you've prompted me on this, mm-hmm. there's no reason I can't. Give it a and give it a you shot. Gotta, you gotta try it, but yeah. you know what you have to consider: mm. the char on the marshmallow. That is that's the X factor that mm. you gotta factor in there because the other the other things like the chocolate, you know what the chocolate's gonna be like, the graham cracker. But right. how is that char? So you gotta let us know. You gotta report back. Do let us know. Okay, I I will do that. But but I I I do think uh, the riesling will hold up to the char. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you, thank you. And I have to try the s'mores too because I actually have everything to make s'mores, and I have the riesling. So I'm gonna try it too. Well, you then you gotta report back it. to me we'll too. Have to yeah, we'll yeah. have to compare because I yeah. you, you know I am gonna try that. Very curious. Yeah. Well, Stu, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fantastic. I enjoyed it a lot. Great. Thank you. Yes. Oh, uh, give us your website if you know it offhand so oh, people can follow you. Yeah. Thank you. My wife would kick me if I didn't do this. Uh, and it's smithmadrone.com. All right. You have a wonderful And we're night. going to have a s'mores uh, roundup sometime soon. Yes. yes we're absolutely. Do that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining the Swirl Suite. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave us five stars, and leave us a comment. We love ratings. Also, be sure to follow all of us on social media. Myself at Find Me Up. Glenn is at Vino Noir. Girl Meets Glass is Tanisha. Vino 301 is Leslie. And you can follow the Swirl Suite podcast account at Swirl Suite. The Swirl Suite is now a part of the Alive Podcast Network. This episode has been edited and produced by Vine Me Up Media.